The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. This year, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Month. But this month, we're celebrating Epilepsy Month in the month of November. As you all know, this is very personal to me as I am living with epilepsy, and that is why I am so excited about our guest today. He is the former chair of the board of the National Epilepsy Foundation. He is a civil rights leader for people living with epilepsy. He is absolutely one of the top epileptologists in the country, and I'm proud to say he's my friend. He is the chief of neurology at Spectrum Health Medical Group. Welcome, Dr. Brian Smith. Well, thank you, Joyce. It's a pleasure to talk with you as usual. Thank you for the kind words. I'm, I'm so glad I could participate today. Well, Brian, we have not talked to you for a while here on the show, so I thought it might be good for our listeners if you could give everyone a little update on what you're currently doing. Uh, well, currently, Joyce, uh, as you mentioned, I'm Chief of Neurology. I co-chair Neurosciences uh, here in Grand Rapids, which is on the west side of the state. And uh, it, I've been here almost five years now after being in the Detroit metropolitan area at Henry Ford for almost 20 years. And it's been a very interesting move, uh, exciting time. I had the opportunity to really grow a number of programs here in Neurosciences in West Michigan. Uh, there was a big gap in how the community was being served. And so it's been a real exciting time, acquired lots of uh, very good uh, uh, specialists and healthcare workers in the field here. So that's where I'm currently at, a, a, a little bit more executive administrative work than clinical than I'm used to, but uh, I'm getting used to that too. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's a change for you, but a good change because with your leadership skills, I know they will benefit. And you mentioned Spectrum Health. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with Spectrum Health Medical Group. Could you tell us more about it? Well, uh, the medical group is one component of the system. Uh, Spectrum Health System is kind of a, it's a not-for-profit integrated managed healthcare organization in West Michigan. So it has 12 hospitals, a number of clinics and treatment facilities, urgent care facilities, um, and about 23,000 employees throughout the system. So there's three components of the Spectrum Health System, the medical group, the hospital group, and then Priority Health is a subsidiary health plan with about 600,000 members. So we're kind of a unique organization that we have that integrated healthcare plan uh, built into the system. So it really gives us the opportunity to look at a lot of information uh, when we talk about quality care and quality data and metrics that so many are being measured by these days in the healthcare world, which is a good thing. I mean, oh, it's one of the gaps that we've had nationally for, for a number of years that is finally being addressed. Well, <clears throat> Brian, what what caused you to decide to move in the direction you did for medical school? I mean, what, did, what caused you to decide to be a neurologist and then ultimately an epileptologist? What caused that? Well, you know, Joyce, I know we've talked about this in the past, and, you know, there's a lot of factors that come into play when you're talking about where you are, what you want to do. I mean, of course, I think anybody who uh, gets into medical school wants to be uh, intimately involved in patient care and, and so do it, really helping out change people's lives in the direction of making them healthy. Um, you know, when I went through medical school, I didn't uh, initially think uh, I knew where I was going to go. It was partly, of course, um, 
affected by my previous uh, physical history. I mean, when I was a teenager in high school, I uh, had some unusual events, which I didn't know what they were uh, until one day in the school parking lot had a major seizure and found out that, of course, the little things that were happening before were little seizures, and I had finally had uh, a larger one that was quite evident to people around me and led to the diagnosis of epilepsy. Uh, so that, of course, was always there, you know, as I uh, advanced not only age but in my training, you know, the whole concept of why do I have that? There was not an answer to that question at that time. And, you know, how was I treated both as a patient and how were physicians in training addressing patients who had this condition? How well did they understand it? And so there were very interesting perspectives that I was gaining as I was going through my medical education. What was important, though, is when it came to a decision of which area that I wanted to pursue in my training, um, with the idea that I was had a history of epilepsy and on seizure medicine, could I ever guarantee that I would be completely seizure-free? So the concept of, although I did well in my surgical rotations, the concept of me becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon probably wasn't the way to go. As you can imagine, if you're in the middle of the operating room and uh, on a a seizure occurs, that could be really a, a major problem. So that kind of had me looking in the direction of, well, what are some of the disciplines where I won't be in the middle of the operating uh, platform or something else where uh, one event could really have a significant impact? And uh, that's kind of why I ended up, one, not going uh, going in the direction of neurology because a lot of that is outpatient ambulatory work where you're sitting and talking with patients um, and not doing you know, brain surgery per se. Um, but the other was there was that natural tendency to go towards that area where my problem existed and, and trying to further understand why I had the problem and how it was being treated and should there be any changes in the way that's addressed. Yeah, well, that is really wonderful because who better to understand epilepsy and seizures than someone that has had a seizure? Because I always say, um, unless you've had a seizure, even if you see people having a seizure, you really don't understand it um, unless you, too, are in that same situation. And one thing that I've found out over the past uh, 20 years that I've been in business and really over the past several years now that, you know, with the radio show or speaking across the country is I am often surprised how many people do not know what epilepsy is. You know, I'm sure it's because I've been in the world of epilepsy, you know, with the Epilepsy Foundation and Tony Quello and disability rights. But, you know, it is not as well known or understood, I should say, as you would think that it is. So I thought it might be educational um, if you might describe to our listeners what epilepsy is and also some of the causes, just as you wondered, you know, what caused me to uh, have this disability. Uh, Because I really don't think people, all they know about epilepsy is, oh, it's that person that I saw falling. So would you mind explaining it and the causes of it? Sure, Joyce. Uh, So, you know, the the term epilepsy, we apply to a disorder which has recurrent epileptic seizures. Uh, You know, if you think of the brain as this massive electrical network, and when you're born, if the brain is normal and as it develops or as you go through life, uh, barring injury, that big electrical network should stay balanced. The circuits shouldn't short circuit. And what's happening with epilepsy, a seizure, is really an electrical short circuit of the brain. And how it looks, um, you know, how a seizure may manifest, in part depends on does it start in one part of the brain or does it involve the whole brain at once? And if it starts in one part of the brain, how does it spread? Someone may have seizures coming from one part of the brain, but it can look quite different from seizure to seizure based on how much that electrical short circuit spreads throughout the brain. 
Of course, the more widespread it becomes, the more significant the seizure typically looks from those who are standing around, including alteration in consciousness and falling to the ground and stiffening and jerking and so on. Um, and, you know, most people think of epilepsy as one term, but as you know, there was an IOM report that came out a couple years ago, and many of us in the field have known this. There's so many different forms of epilepsy um, because there are so many different causes. And like in all the medical fields, as we progress with technology and understanding, uh, many of the causes uh, for epilepsy can actually have a genetic basis. So um, what happens is there are people born every day that have inherited something that are going to put them at risk for developing seizures and epilepsy because of that genetic predisposition. So that's, that's one cause. But a, a number of other causes that we talk about include, for example, birth complications. Something occurred, you know, during delivery or shortly thereafter that could, could have been harmful to the brain. Infections, you know, we talk about meningitis or encephalitis. Anytime you have an infection and it involves the brain or the fluid around it, there's a potential risk that you can then develop uh, a seizure disorder. Uh, trauma, uh, you know, this is a, a common discussion that, you know, when you have head trauma, especially more severe head trauma, that can also injure the brain and be uh, create the environment for the development of recurrent seizures. A couple other things, uh, you know, in the mid-90s when the MRI study, the brain imaging studies became much improved, uh, especially with certain techniques in MRI, we started seeing patients that we knew had seizures for many years, but we didn't know why, and the CAT scan was normal, and we started seeing very subtle developmental abnormalities in the, in the formation of the brain. The person looks completely normal. They're acting normal, yet there's this, uh, for example, uh, the cortex or the outer layer of the brain is, is thicker in one area, and it didn't develop normally, and then results in seizures. And then, of course, you have other common ones that we see. You know, if someone has a stroke, they've injured the brain, they can develop seizures from that. Some of the more, some of the neurodegenerative disorders, like even Alzheimer's disease, can have a slight increased frequency of seizures and epilepsy than we've seen in the normal population. So the list is fairly long. You have to keep in mind really anything that can injure the brain or upset that electrical balance can create that uh, stage for the development of recurrent seizures or epilepsy. Well, I have a few questions about that. But first, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Donna, are you on the line? Yes, Hey, Donna, how are you? I am good, Joyce. Thank you. And this is Donna Stallhut, the CEO of the Epilepsy Foundation uh, in Texas. So go ahead, Donna. Well, you know, I, I was just listening to Dr. Smith talk about, you know, his his um, wealth of knowledge in the field of epilepsy, and I highly respect that, but I came to know Brian Smith when he chaired the Epilepsy Foundation National Board of Directors and was just a godsend to my affiliate, and I believe affiliates all across the country, when he devoted I don't know how many hours each day, not just to his regular job, but to working with affiliates in the national office to to provide programs and services for people with epilepsy. And I haven't had a chance to talk to Brian in a number of years, so I just wanted to, to tell him how grateful all of us are for that. Well, Donna, it's, it's just a pleasure hearing your voice. I, I'm so glad we have a chance to talk because you're right, we haven't connected in a couple years. And uh, but you, I, and I really appreciate the kind words. But uh, you know, your your role in the affiliate as an affiliate lead, um, and I, obviously the interactions that we've had in the past show how important each person is in an organization like the Epilepsy Foundation um, from every affiliate throughout every state all the way up to the the leads in the national level because we all have the same purpose and that's representing uh, people with epilepsy and their families and you and your affiliate have done an amazing job and and I want to thank you for all your efforts because you know success is is a uh, a product of those who work well together and communicate well together and and I've just had such a great time interacting with you over the years Donna well thank you uh, thank you very much, Joyce, for taking my call. 
Oh, I want to say one last thing. You know, I, too, have been very proud to be on the national board. I am extremely proud to be on the local board. I just want to say that the affiliates really are where the rubber meets the road and do so much uh, work, and Donna's one of them. So thank you, Donna, for all you do, and thank you for calling in. You're very welcome. Thank you both. Bye-bye. 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 <clears throat> Great person, Donna Stahl. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I want to get back to something you were talking about with the causes of epilepsy. I mean, do you have any idea? What would, you know, if people you meet that say, I don't know how, you know, I have epilepsy because they didn't have a trauma, you know, they didn't have any of these things happen that, you know, you talked about at birth or they don't have a comorbidity that would cause this. In that case, what percentage of those people do you think it's genetic? Well, that's a great question, Joyce, and, you know, I'm sure the answer I gave would just be an approximate and and not necessarily accurate at this point because what we're finding out is with every passing day, we're identifying new genetic markers that we didn't know existed before. You know, in a lot of cases, we would kind of look at the big picture and say, well, we don't know what causes this epilepsy, and and maybe about half of them now we've identified a genetic cause. So how many of the remaining are actually a genetic cause or actually, for example, another more subtle malformation of development of the brain? I mean, when I mentioned in the mid-'90s, with some of the MRI techniques and answered a lot of questions of things we didn't know, you can imagine as technology improves, Epilepsy or seizures themselves can occur from abnormalities at a cellular level. So as we get even higher resolution images, a portion of that will be determined anatomically, a portion, of course, will be genetic, and then there's still going to be a remaining portion that we're still looking for the cause. So it's a great question. I just can't give you an accurate answer at that because only the future will tell. So that is why I'm saying there are people and I'm one of them, that are not sure, you know, what caused epilepsy. I have people say that to me all the time. Why do I have this? I don't know why I have this. But I'm just saying there are many people that there is not a known cause. Isn't that correct? That's correct. And, you know, you would want to be sure really with anybody who has that story that a comprehensive evaluation has been done. So whoever has seen them, have they done really the uh, a really high-resolution picture of their brain? If the suspicion from the clinical history raises certain genetic testing that is available now, that should also be done. I mean, like I said, national news every night, you're almost hearing about a new determination or a genetic cause for an ailment that we didn't have the answer to before, or at least a, a fraction of, the, of that disorder. So you are able to get this genetic testing done for epilepsy or or not? Yeah, there there's a number of panels that are now available. If uh, and of course this is probably utilized even more in the pediatric world um, than in the adult world because many times the genetic causes for epilepsy present earlier in life. So our pediatric colleagues are probably utilizing those more than we are. Uh, but there are panels. Um, available that you can test patients to see if uh, they are, um, you know, in that category of having a genetic cause or predisposition. Now, that is really interesting. Remember, I told you when I speak, many people don't quite understand epilepsy. At the same time, which is even more pervasive, if you ask people, oh, what is epilepsy, they'll say, oh, when people have a grand mal seizure. This is all they know, that you have a seizure and have a convulsion. But I know there are other types of seizures that happen that, that actually may be completely misunderstood. I thought maybe you could share uh, that information with our listeners. Yeah, there are many different seizure types, and what makes it unfortunately a little bit more confusing is the terminology we use in the medical world is forever changing. Um, to try to give a, a more appropriate description or classification of seizure types or epilepsy types, and so some of the terms that I'm using here may even be considered um, 
old per se, but I don't want to get too complicated here uh, as we talk about seizures. Just to give a, a fairly simple overview, you know, if we break down people who have epilepsy, there's uh, a, a section that have their seizures coming from one part of the brain, or we call focal or partial seizures. And then there, of course, are people who have seizures that involve the whole brain at once or generalized seizures. And unfortunately, you can have people who have seizures starting from one part of the brain that spread in a generalized fashion. So it gets a little bit more complicated there. So for example, if I uh, have a brain tumor or I've had trauma to one area of the brain, I can start having uh, maybe three types of seizures all coming from one area. Uh, the, probably the most simple form, which have been historically called simple partial seizures, is where someone may get an unusual feeling or a numbness in one hand or a rising sensation from their stomach or a feeling of deja vu. It's a very typically short episode where they don't have alteration in consciousness, and that's where a seizure has short-circuited a small part of the brain. We call it simple uh, because it has an altered consciousness, partial or focal because it stays in one area, and then seizure, so simple partial seizure. That's one type. So, excuse me, just so everyone will understand, so what would it look like if you have a simple partial seizure? Well, in many cases, you won't even be able to tell the person's having it. So I could be sitting here on the phone with you right now and have a funny feeling in my stomach, which we would also call an aura, which is consistent with simple partial seizure. It's that funny feeling I'm getting that something's not right. You won't see it when looking at me. It may be a feeling of deja vu. It may be a feeling of fear or this rising sensation in my stomach. Uh, most, a lot of times, simple partial seizures won't be visualized. On the other hand, if a seizure starts in a part of my brain that controls like motor function, I could be sitting here and all of a sudden have this flapping movement with my right hand. I could be talking to you like nothing's wrong, but my right hand is flapping because I'm having a little seizure involving the part of the brain that controls my right hand. So or in many cases, that could generalize and go from one to another, correct? Right. So a simple partial seizure can spread to the other side of the brain, becoming a complex partial seizure where someone will look confused. They have an alteration in their, in their ability to retain memory. They may do unusual manifestations like repetitive movements, tapping. They may have a funny posture. They may walk around the room and open drawers, and they don't seem to be making any sense nor responding. They may just have an arrested behavior. So that's when the seizure is spread to one part across the midline to the other part called a complex partial seizure. It may not involve the whole brain yet. When it subsequently spreads to the whole brain, then we have what's called a partial seizure that has secondary generalized, which means now it started in one area, but now not only has it spread to the other side, but the whole brain. And this is your classic, what we call generalized tonic-clonic seizure or convulsion because now the person falls to the ground and may get stiff and bite their tongue and lose control of their urine. So these are three seizures seizure types all potentially emanating from one area, but based on how much they spread will show a, a very potentially different clinical seizure. Um, so those are all under the seizures starting from one part of the brain umbrella. On the other hand, you can have these generalized seizures that many recall from the past, either called as a grand mal or petite mal seizure, where the whole brain short circuits at once. You know, the petite mal or what we call absence seizure is the young man in class who sang the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag and all of a sudden stops and then picks up like three seconds later. Someone's turned the lights on and off. That's an absence or petite mal seizure. A generalized seizure is a, just a convulsion right off the get-go. There's no warning. It's not waiting from spread from one side to the other, but someone just goes right to ground and gets stiff and jerking. And the difference between generalized and partial seizures is with partial seizures, you may get a warning. Typically with, general, typically with generalized seizures, you don't, although there are some people who even get a little bit of a warning effect before a generalized seizure can occur. And there's other types of generalized seizures that are not as common that are seen in more of the uh, significantly impaired individuals with some of the more severe forms of epilepsy. Right, and uh, I always say one seizure a year is too many, but sadly there are children that have hundreds in a day. Isn't that correct? Right, yeah, you can have 
many, many seizures in a day. Some of them can be myoclonic seizures, which is a brief jerk. Some of them can be these tonic seizures, which is a quick stiffening, or what we call atonic, where they actually lose tone and drop very quickly. And you can have clusters of them. You can have someone who has 20 to 30 in, in you know, five minutes, and then they'll have a break, and then they'll have 20 to 30 more. So it can be a very refractory disorder that's very challenging to treat and try to control that. Well, um, we want to talk more about this, but right now we have another caller on the line. Cindy, are you there? Yes. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Brian. Hi. Uh, this is Cindy from Michigan, Cindy Hanford. I know Brian Hi, very well. Hi, how are you? Trips to Washington. I'm doing very well. Um, sad day when you left us here in Detroit, but that's okay. I mean, you're, you've got a, a great um, position out there at Spectrum. And, um, you know, we're still very proud of you, still, still very, uh, you know, grateful for your help with us and your connection with us. And, and Joyce, um, very happy you. you being such a strong advocate for people with employment and the need to erase some of that stigma and keep people with epilepsy vitally employed and getting rid of uh, employers' fears. So, well, thank uh, I, you, I Cindy. Well, I think it's, you know, I myself have epilepsy, and I think it's, we need to get together. I mean, we want to promote inclusion, but the problem is, is, is we do feel somewhat different sometimes, and I think um, getting together uh, people with epilepsy, talking to people with epilepsy, supporting people with epilepsy, getting into fields such as yourself, uh, Dr. Smith, and you, Joyce, and myself as a nurse, uh, to help advocate for people. Um, that that I think in all areas, be it political, be it healthcare, be it anything, um, we need to get that together because nobody understands until they experience it. Nobody understands until they're on the medication, and nobody understands until they experience the discrimination. So um, oh, I, just I agree one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah that, those are great points, Cindy. And uh, I mean, you've done an amazing job here in Michigan. And I recall a number of our uh, memorable trips to Capitol Hill, Hill, where you brought in family and patients. We we just had a great time educating uh, our our folks in, in Congress. And so I really appreciate all the work that you've done because you've brought the message and understanding of epilepsy to really thousands of people in in, in Michigan. Well, that, that's, that's what we're all here for. That's what our heart is connected by. Um, and also our brains. But <laughs> one last question I've got for you. Um, intranasal versed. Okay. What's your position on it in the use in the community right now? Well, as you know, there, there are products that are being, um, uh, hopefully coming to market in the near future. And this is, you know, when we talk about using midazolam, which is a, is a quick-acting uh, benzodiazepine, um, when patients are in a, in a setting where they're having prolonged seizures or repetitive seizures at home, are there ways that we can uh, stop seizures without using things like diazepam that has to be placed per rectum because that isn't obviously the most convenient way um, in some people's eyes. So quicker ways to administer um, uh, a benzodiazepine either through, the, you know, in the nose, in the mouth. Um, are there ways to do it with an injection? So th this is a very significant interest by a lot of people out in the field. And, yes, I have used uh, intranasal midazolam um, with uh, – it's typically had to be written up in a certain way where it was mixed or supplied to the patient and uh, something called an atomizer, which is kind of like a specialty syringe which injects the medicine uh, into the nose or the nares at the, at the time of the seizure because uh, it gives you a specific quantity that – um, is absorbed relatively quickly and has been pretty effective in stopping seizures. I, I, I very much am excited when it becomes commercially available because it's a little bit more difficult to do that way, um, but that's just, a, I'm hoping, just a matter of time. Yeah, we're, we're having difficulty with schools, people ordering it, and schools not wanting to administer it because it's not FDA approved, but they've been using it in Australia for years. I mean, you know, so that's where I'm stuck with right now, and I just wanted to hear your professional opinion on it, and all studies are out there. So I thank you very much, and, and both of you, Joyce and Brian, you continue your great work, okay? Thanks, Cindy. Thank you, and you too, Cindy. Thank you for calling right. in. Bye-bye. Uh -huh.
So nice to hear from these affiliates, isn't it, Brian? Oh, it sure is. Sure is. So nice. We know you're famous in Detroit, just like Motown. Well, and Cindy and, and the Epilepsy Foundation of Michigan does a great job throughout the state. I mean, even though obviously a large uh, percentage are in the metropolitan Detroit area, we uh, on the west side, we're developing quite a large population, too, and we appreciate their outreach that, and the services that they provided here. And listen, if you're listening to the show, and we are talking to Dr. Brian Smith, the Chief of Neurology at Spectrum Health Medical Group and former Chair of the Board of the National Epilepsy Foundation, if you're listening um, and, you know, you're not sure either with a family member or someone else, remember, this show can be downloaded from iTunes, and it is important for everyone to understand epilepsy because so many people who are disadvantaged or in poverty have no idea uh, about all, and really others, they just don't know that, oh, there isn't just the tonic-clonic seizure or the convulsive seizure. There's also an obstant seizure, you know, so many different things. So it's important for everyone to know this, which absolutely perfectly leads me to my next question, which is, Brian, as you well know, I was misdiagnosed uh, with my epilepsy. And for that reason, I wanted you to point out why you think it is important to see a neurologist rather than just the family doctor in reference to epilepsy. Well, uh, you know, I take my hat off to uh, primary care physicians. They do amazing work. And when you think about all the disorders and the the uh, body systems, you know, cardiovascular, pulmonary, dermatology, you know, they cover really every system where a lot of us specialists, we get to focus on our one area. So we become quite knowledgeable in that area, but that's the expectation. Whereas primary care, uh, they have to cover everything. So the, the depth of knowledge that they're going to be able to obtain in every specialty really has to have some limitations. There's no other way to do it. Um, there are a number of patients who, you know, get diagnosed with epilepsy who are well controlled on one medication and, you know, their follow-up with primary care is quite appropriate. There are other patients who are obviously more challenging and you mentioned that one where the diagnosis is not necessarily uh, uh, made um, in a rapid fashion, and that's because the presentation of someone's seizures may not be as clear-cut as everybody assumed they were. So then does the appropriate workup follow leading to that diagnosis? You know, when we talk about an illness that in many cases is a lifelong illness and the the side effects of the medication, the interactions with other drugs, the effects on, you know, pregnancy and other things, you really at least want to have one good snapshot of that big picture. And that really uh, is can't necessarily be done at the primary care level with some of these disorders and the complexity of the medications and other treatment options available. Right. And I agree with you that there are many wonderful family doctors, but really, you know, when you have questions and you're not satisfied, you have to see a neurologist just as you would see an oncologist with cancer or, you know, no matter what the disorder would be, but you really, the first thing I recommend to people is, are you going to a neurologist and if they are an epileptologist, even better, even better yet. Um, okay, we have another caller on the line. Peggy, are you on the line? I am, Joyce. Good afternoon. How Hello, are you? Hello, Peggy. Hello, Peggy. Hi, how are you, Dr. Smith? How's it good. going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, She's I good because wanna... she works for the best affiliate in the United States, <laughs> which, of course, is the Epilepsy Foundation of Western and Central PA. And I don't know if you know this, Brian, but Peggy is the CEO now that Judy has retired. Congratulations. That is well, amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, Joyce, everybody knows you have to say that because you're on my local board. So, <laughs> Donna? 
Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I heard Donna call in earlier. So um, I, I, I wanted to thank you, too, for all of the many hours and all the time and, and, and passion that you've dedicated to the Epilepsy Foundation, Dr. Smith, and you, of course, Joyce. Um, I don't know what I would do without Joyce Bender. Um, but I, I had uh, was listening to everybody talk this afternoon, and I guess my question for you, you know, we at the affiliate level, I think often feel like we have a great relationship with the medical community, and I think that we do. Um, but I, I sort of feel like maybe we're m- missing something in our communications because we're always talking about trying to elevate epilepsy to um, the public health issue level in America and trying to get people to treat epilepsy as a public health issue. And I'm wondering, you know, do you think there's a way for us at the local level to involve the medical community a little bit more? Is there something we should be doing that we're not doing with our local experts that um, that, that would help us more in our mission and in, in getting some of the medical community a little bit more involved? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Peggy. And I know we've debated this before because, you know, engagement between the local affiliates and all the surrounding um, physicians who, uh, both neurologists and epileptologists who treat patients with epilepsy, is a challenge. You know, with all the changes in healthcare, uh, everybody seems to have less time, which is part of the problem. Um, but then there's also issues of uh, uh, there is significant competition out there too, and makes that even more difficult because you're reaching out and providing services to patients. And I think what um, really just needs to be done is reaching out and getting everybody around the table to discuss the services, one, that the Epilepsy Foundation provides, but also how you, how you can work hand-in-hand hand with them to really make this an issue to educate the public, educate the community, and try to move forward um, in, 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 in uh, attempts to, of course, get some funding to for, both for research but for further patient advocacy and support. And uh, that is a challenge. And, um, you know, there are many ways to try to do it. Some are successful and some aren't. Um, but I think you, we just got to keep moving ahead and keep trying hard. That uh, I think everybody in the medical world is realizing how important, you know, a patient and how they're satisfied and how they're getting their questions answered and not using the Epilepsy Foundation with the amount of support that they can provide, the knowledge that they have, some of the tools that they can provide, it, it just is not a wise step to, to not have that communication and that relationship. Right. Well, we, we really have good relationships in western and central Pennsylvania, and I, I just uh, sometimes I feel like we talk amongst ourselves a little bit too much and we need to get everybody talking more to the, you know, more of the media, more of the other folks in the community and, and not so much amongst ourselves. So um, thank you so much for everything that you do for the epilepsy movement and, and, um, and for sharing all of your expertise with us today. Well, thank you thank for you all your today. hard work, too. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Peggy. Thanks for calling in. No problem. Thanks, Joyce. Well, Brian, as you, you can see, the affiliates have not forgotten you. <laughs> well, and I, it's all, it was always just a great experience to, to, one, learn what's happening at each affiliate and just interacting with uh, all the, um, the advocates who are stationed at the affiliates. I remember, and I think you remember, Joyce, when we had one of those national meetings where we got to really sit down at the tables with a number of the members from each affiliate to really look at um, the future of the organization. And it was so enlightening because there were so many great ideas that were coming from each table, and just having that direct interaction was just really an enriching experience for me. Yes, Um, and I want to say one other thing. Going back to when Donna called, um, Donna Stallhut, she mentioned about all the hours that you put in, in addition, of course, to, you know, being an epileptologist. And if anyone knows that for a fact, it is me, because uh, I was at that time the past chair, and I used to say Brian's number was on my speed dial, but I just want you all to know, when I say that it was like non-stop hours, 
I am not exaggerating. I am the person that can testify to that. And, you know, he gave so much, so much uh, more than a lot of people would ever give. Uh, so Donna Stalha did not exaggerate when she said that. Well, Joyce, I, I know that uh, you had the same number of hours because you were on those phone calls, and uh, I think we both remarked that I think we had more interaction with each other for a period of time than we had with our own spouses. <laughs> oh, that is a fact. That is absolutely a fact. Um, and, you know, couldn't, there couldn't be a better person or friend that I'd rather be talking to. Likewise. Brian, every time, even at the National uh, Epilepsy Foundation, you know, you're always hearing people talk about uh, looking for the cure, trying to find the cure for epilepsy. I mean, is that even like a reality in the next 10 or 20 years? Or, you know, what's, what's your feeling about this? You know, it's a great question, and I would love to say, yes, I think for sure it's going to happen, and I know I can't say that. I think as I listen and I read and we look at, obviously, genetics is probably one of the main areas where um, we've made so much progress, and so as we identify some of these syndromes, and where we're, lo- we're looking at things like enzyme deficiencies and how we may be able to correct them at a cellular level. And so I, I think there clearly is going to be opportunity that there could be a cure, at least in subsets of the population. Uh, remember, we have lots of different epilepsies, different causes. So I think, you know, when we talk in the next 10 to 20 years, we will have some cures. Will it be uh, epilepsy across the board? I'm, I'm a little bit... Uh, hesitant to say that will be the case because remember that some of these are just related to direct injury and now you have an abnormal circuit and how do you correct that circuit Um, which I find a a bit more of a challenging issue Um, uh, that's not a a simple task and no one has figured out how they're going to do that yet but uh, I want to be upbeat but we have to remember how many different forms of epilepsy there are and just continue to support the research that really is trying to answer some of these questions and I'm you know we're going to have to have you back on Brian because there's so much to talk about Um, and of course I couldn't cover everything here but um, also I forgot to ask you about this but people also have surgery to try to stop seizures right yes and that and and those options are uh, actually increasing it as you know once someone is considered medically refractory, which typically is failure of two to three appropriate anti-epileptic medications, then they're being considered for surgery. And surgery is actually trying to find that area of the brain that's causing the seizures and removing it. And some of those cases are very straightforward, you know, coming from one temporal lobe, and um, you have consistent data showing the pathology both by MRI and EEG, and it's a very straightforward case. On the other hand, you have ones that are much more complicated and the outcome is less positive and the risks are higher. Um, We've also started to see advances in options besides just epilepsy surgery and how it's being done. Uh, You know, the typical epilepsy surgery is actually a surgeon going and removing, whether it's cutting or cauterizing that tissue out out, uh, of the brain itself. Uh, Now there's a technique for certain lesions where you can actually thread a, a catheter using an MRI for guidance and you can thermally ablate or kind of heat the lesion. And these were tumors and other lesions deep within the brain that we couldn't even touch before. So that's another opportunity that uh, people are looking at. Uh, you've heard of kind of the new techniques of neurostimulation where let's say someone has seizures coming from both temporal lobes. You can't remove both temporal lobes or you won't have working memory. So now some of these patients have the option where we put an electrode in each temporal lobe and a computer generator in their brain that actually records like an EEG machine and you train the computer to send a stimulation to stop a seizure when it sees a seizure pattern on that EEG recording. So we, we definitely are making progress and as we fine tune some of these newer options and create even more, um, that list will be more extensive and some of the options that weren't available for patients even five years ago will be on the horizon in the next five. Wow, so much. There's so much happening. And what does someone do, Brian, 
um, who cannot get medication? What do they do? Well, you know, a lot of times it's interesting when I see patients in clinic when they're having trouble, one of the first steps is actually getting them together with a social worker and looking really at what are their opportunities or options because in many cases the patient or the family may not understand the big picture and what are some of the opportunities where they could get their medication. The other is what are some of the support systems? There's a number of programs that can aid in getting medication or provide some support financially um, when you have someone who has epilepsy and isn't uh, hasn't found the appropriate access. It's not perfect across the board yet, but part of that is understanding what are the options, and, and that's why in many cases we'll bring in a social worker who can kind of look at the full picture for the patient um, and in many cases answer some of the questions that hadn't been answered before. Well, and if you, you know, you have to have medication. If Remember all these affiliates we talked about? You know, go to the National Epilepsy Foundation's website and then find the affiliate in your area. You've got to get to a local chapter so that someone can help you. So make sure because you've got to take your medication. That is critical. Uh, I know if I did not, I would be having a seizure. You know, you've got to have the correct medication. So, Brian, wow, I I can have a guess with all these great things that have happened to you, but over the past year, um, what what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? Well, you know, Joyce, and this, I, I know we've had discussions about this, and, and I don't mean to be uh, going away from the epilepsy discussion, but I probably I think the area that I, I think um, we've made the most progress, at least um, when I, my involvement in some of the committees and some of the work, you know, we've talked about this term non-epileptic seizures before, um, and there's a, a significant population out there that have what look to be epileptic seizures, but aren't actually epilepsy. These are recurrent seizures, but the brain electrical brain activity is normal, and. Um, you know, most people say, well, what are you talking about? I mean, there's a term called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures where many times they're being treated for epilepsy, but that's not the accurate diagnosis. And the problem is many of these cases are, you know, what I would consider the ultimate victim. You know, a common scenario for people who develop psychogenic non-epileptic seizures are, for example, the young female who's been sexually or physically abused. It doesn't get appropriately treated and that kind of gets repressed and now that's manifesting as some other type of physical disorder like recurrent seizures. Um, This has been termed in the past under a psychiatric diagnosis of conversion disorder. And unfortunately, this population has bounced back and forth between neurologists and psychiatrists and really hasn't been addressed appropriately. And I think now that we're recognizing this problem, we're recognizing it earlier, we're developing research trials that are answering some of the questions, and the Epilepsy Foundation has actually been a big part of that because they educate at the affiliate level, and a number of the people who come in to for information may be manifesting as seizures that end up being these uh, non-epileptic seizures or what we call psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. And uh, so I think that's been a really a major area and the Epilepsy Foundation has been very helpful not only on their website but at the affiliate level educating and directing patients in the appropriate manner. Yeah, and I think that's really important. And when we have you back on, Brian, um, I would like to talk about that more because What he's saying, there are people that have what are seizures, but they're not caused from epilepsy. Correct. Um, And I know that's, in other words, if you would do an EEG, you would not see epilepsy. So, um, you know, and I know so many people don't understand that, uh, but I know for years that's been important to you. um, So I'm glad you've made such progress in that area. So, Brian, what what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, Joyce, I know you and Tony have been pivotal, pivotal, and really challenging the issue of stigma and epilepsy, and in the and in the disability world. And I think that's such a huge message. And that would probably be one of the things you know when when people think of epilepsy, remember that this is a disorder. 
um, because of an electrical problem in the brain. You know, there might be other problems, but, you know, there's been this tendency because of the stigma to look at the population as as someone different. But, you know, we're all normal human beings that have, uh, you know, a, a medical problem, one system. So we should be engaged with everybody at the same table. Um, so, one, patients who have this disorder really should feel that they are with everybody else at the table for discussions, and healthcare providers should also realize that, you know, this is not something that you talk down to. Um, you know, there's so many really, really great people out there who have this this disorder, and no one even knows about it um, because we we're talking about a highly functional uh, population, but you're also talking about a wide spectrum of disorders and some who can be severely affected. So we just need to keep a very indiv- individualized perspective and leave the stigma of the past in the past uh, and really help each other move ahead uh, as you and Tony have really been the directors of for many years. And that is so true because um, actual psychiatric issues, uh, bullying, unemployment, low self-confidence, so much can happen from stigma and shame with epilepsy. And that's, I agree with you, Brian, that's so important for us uh, to change. And I want to just thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, you're quite welcome, Joyce. It's been a pleasure. We've had on the show today Dr. Brian Smith, the Chief of Neurology for Spectrum Health Medical Group. Uh, I want to thank also our sponsors of the show, Covestro and Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield. This is something very important to me, epilepsy, ending the stigma. And we'll continue talking about that this month, but we end every show with a quote And today, that quote is, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. And how true that is. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. I look forward to our conversation next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.